narrative design, an often overlooked yet crucial aspect of game development. When done correctly, a game can inspire, delight, and represent players in ways never thought of before. But when done incorrectly, a game risks offending, alienating, and misrepresenting players who may seek comfort and joy in a particular project. In this episode of Those Who Play Create, I talk with Tori Schaefer about the art of narrative design. Welcome to Those Who Play Create, the podcast that explores the stories, ideas, and inspirations for some of the gaming industry's best. We're diving into an important but sometimes overlooked aspect of video games today, narrative design and writing. That being said, on the show, we have a very special guest. She's a senior narrative designer at Counterplay Games. Her accolades include narrative design and writing for Elder Scrolls Online and Spellbreak. We have award-winning designer, Tori Schaefer. How are you today? I'm good. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Ooh, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so as we mentioned in my intro spiel, uh, today's episode is going to center around narrative design and writing and how these important elements help shape games overall and more specifically the projects that you've worked on in the past. But before we get into that, we have a little housekeeping to do. So as always, we would love to hear from our listeners. So feel free to email me at twpc at loreparty.com with your thoughts, questions, and ideas, and you may just see them appear on a future episode. You can find me on Twitter at producedby underscore LK. And of course, you can connect with the rest of the Lore Party team on Instagram, Twitter, and Twitch at Lore underscore Party. Now with the housekeeping out of the way, we're going to take a quick break and we'll get right into the conversation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, now that we're back and ready to get started, let's kick things off with my basic introduction question. So Tori, for those who are listening that might not be familiar with you or your work, can you give us a little bit of a background on who you are, how you got started in the industry, and how you got where you are today as a narrative designer, video game writer, and published author? Yeah, right. So I actually started um, as a English teacher of all things. I guess that's not too weird, or English teacher turned writer. Um, but I, I went to school for that. I actually first went to school for creative writing. And then I thought, oh, there's no way I'll ever get a career in creative writing. And so I switched <laughs> majors, uh, ironically. And um, I ended up as a teacher. I 
did not like that. <laughs> I did that for like two years and I was like, I got to get out of here. So the, um, the, I actually then entered the games industry as a QA tester for ZeniMax Online Studios. They are the ones who make Elder Scrolls Online. So um, I started at QA and then I did that for a while. And then the writing team was uh, hiring. And a great thing about ZeniMax is that they do a lot of internal hiring from other teams. So um, I learned about this writing position that was open up and they were like open to people of all kinds of experiences. And I applied and luckily I, I got it, which is I, you know, I, I obviously I was had a good reputation in QA for working well. Uh, you know, working hard. And, uh, I also like, you know, had writing chops, <laughs> you know, hopefully <laughs> that was, that was the case. Uh, I had to like submit a writing portfolio you often do for a writing job. And I knew a lot about elder scrolls, like from my work in QA, but also I did a lot of research and, uh, you know, just showed enthusiasm and passion. And they were like, yeah, let's hire. So I, I worked at Zenimax for the first couple of years of my career as a writer and narrative designer, um, working very closely with the quest designers. Uh, we call them content designers at Zenimax, which is a great experience. And I, and I really loved my time there. Uh, and then I started working for Proletariat after that on spell break. And I was like, I went from a kind of small narrative team, pretty big content team over at Cinemax to a team of one <laughs> at Spellbreak, <laughs> where I was the only narrative designer and writer on the team because there just wasn't a lot of story. But I was, you know, helping every bit of the story uh, in continuity and things like that uh, weekly quest. So I did a lot of quest design during my time there and things like that. Um, and then I moved to Counterplay where I'm working with a small team that I, I absolutely adore. And we're working on a new project that I unfortunately am, <laughs> cannot say anything about, but I'm really excited about. <laughs> and I'm really loving my work there. So uh, that's kind of my my progression into game design and, and how I ended up currently where I am. Awesome. Awesome. That is quite the journey. I have a few friends that also started as English teachers that moved into careers that they just never expected. So it's feel like it's like the <laughs> it's, it's somehow like this proving grounds for getting people where they want to go. It's like it's a gateway to your true destiny. I love that. Yes. <laughs> My tutorial level, which I which I passed. Through. <laughs> That's awesome. And so, you know, as I as I've mentioned over and over again, uh, we're going to focus on narrative designing and writing and, you know, how these components of game development uh, really help bring projects to life, because I think that it is something that is normally often overlooked. But before we do hop into your previous projects, I have one question that I believe will also kind of help listeners who might not be familiar with narrative design understand the discipline a little bit better. So my first question for you is, oftentimes there's this sort of um, false dichotomy between narrative design work and writing for a video game. And this is mainly due to the fact that uh, most players are only shown text for dialogue and are not privy to behind the scenes, like development work on these types of projects. So in your own words, can you explain the differences between these disciplines and speak to the similarities? And additionally, how has being well-versed in both areas impacted your career and the projects that you've worked on? Right. So writers are like the words that you see on the screen. Somebody has to write them. And uh, for most game projects, that is, you know, I wouldn't say most game projects, but for a lot of 
I guess, bigger game projects, right? It is somebody who's under the title of writer. So this is somebody who is obviously very good at writing, you know, creative writing, uh, and they understand the lore and the narrative of the game. And they are basically, you know, making sure that the tone is consistent, that the character voices are consistent, that it fits well within the genre that you're, you know, the game is. Um, so it's, it's definitely a, a work. It, it, it's, it's quite a lot of work. Um, you know, lore, character backstories and character, like, characterization, I suppose, uh, all those things are kind of under the role of writer. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of people think of when they think of a narrative designer, or, sorry, narrative in games in general. Uh, they think of that writing role, you know, somebody who's like, you know, coming up with all the story ideas, which, you know, sometimes writers do get to come up with more of the story ideas. And sometimes it's very much a compromise between a lot of the creative visions in the studio. That being said, narrative design is much more how that story is told to the player in the context of the game, the systems in place, how story is told throughout a level, how story is told like through quest content or through just player progression through the game, like thinking about all that and designing all that and very often implementing all that. So for example, um, a great example that I like to think of is Persona, the series, you know, three, four, and five specifically, how the way that you learn about characters' backstories is that you go through this social system where you, like, level up their relationship with you by giving them, like, gifts and talking with them and doing events and things like that. And that's a very deliberate choice because they're trying to build up, like, you're building up a friendship by getting to know them more, and the way you increase friendships is by giving gifts and saying the right thing and, and, you know, empathizing with them and things like that. And so that's narrative design. But the actual dialogue that the characters then say to you, that would be writing. So that's a, an example that I like to think of. There, I could say that about, like, if you told me any game with narrative in it, I could probably tell you this is the writing bits and this is the narrative design bits. But that's really the the crux of the matter. Uh, and there's also, like, narrative designers who specialize, like I said, in systems. Some specialize in quest content. Some specialize in uh, level design. Those are all subsets. Uh, technical narrative designers as well, who are like basically engineers that specialize in that, those kinds of, that kind of work, I suppose, narrative work. Uh, those are all subcategories of narrative design. Okay. And so that's a, that's actually a good transition to my, my second question then, you know, and kind of when jumping from writing to narrative design and, and back, which elements of narrative design do you pull from your experiences as a writer and I'll even say as a teacher and which elements of writing, if any, have been enhanced by your narrative design experience? Right. So th- a lot of writers are also narrative designers. A lot of narrative designers are also writers. They just really go hand in hand. So a lot of studios will even like my first role in Elder Scrolls Online, I was technically a writer and a narrative designer, though it was a very writing heavy role. Being a writer, you have to learn how to pace out a story and tell that story in a way that's engaging and provides clarity to the player or obscurity, if that's kind of what you're going for, right? So um, basically, storytelling is all about engaging your audience and narrative design is creating a design within the game where players are willing and wanting to be engaged. Like if I tell you a very important story moment when you're in the middle of a combat moment and you're like really concentrating on that combat moment, that's not great storytelling because you're not going to be in the right mind space to listen, right? Right. Because you're doing something like that. And, but also a lot of like beats are done 
in a lot of stories after the battle or at the climax of the battle or, you know, right before the battle or something like that. So a lot of writing and learning how to tell an engaging story in a way that your audience will understand with and like, you know, hopefully like resonate with. Those are all something that you can apply to narrative design and vice versa. Narrative design then lets me know how much writing does this seed need? How much dialogue should I put here? Like, like how much is the player going to be able to take in at this moment while they're doing this action? So it really just is bouncing back and forth. These two like, you know, disciplines of like how they interact with each other, especially in video games, especially in game design. And so, so you would say that, Someone in this role should be fairly versed in these two things, or at least, especially if, especially if they're you know on a team of one, as you mentioned. So someone with like a larger team should just kind of be um, like work well cross functionally with people that you know can that perform the tasks that are involved on the other side. Then, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you could be a pure writer and work with a narrative designer, especially in a bigger studio. And that person yeah. will be the expert in whatever they are. But like, if you have knowledge of narrative design as a writer or knowledge as writing, knowledge of writing as a narrative designer, you're just going to be able to communicate better and work together better and be able to really bring out the best in each other. You know, my knowledge of narrative design um, as a writer at Elder Scrolls Online helped me work with our content designers who were really thinking about the whole big picture. And I'm here being like, I am story. I am character, I am dialogue, but I'm an expert at that. And I'm going to help you focus it on that while we're talking and while we're building things together. And then they'll work with an encounter designer on the encounter design that's happening or a combat that's happening or the level design that needs to be made, right? Um, so I think that definitely having knowledge of, of a lot of different disciplines actually in game design always helps you become a better developer, period. Okay. No, that's that's super interesting. And so... You know, as promised, now that we have this kind of, uh, you know, we've defined these two disciplines, um, let's take a look at some of the professional projects that you've worked on. So, you know, as we've discussed, and even as, you know, I, I've stated in other interviews I've conducted for this podcast, like non-written elements of storytelling play a huge part and humanizing characters so that they're more relatable and impactful to the player. That being said, like most of the interviews I have actually conducted for this podcast uh, involve small teams or solo devs who are pretty much forced to wear multiple hats in order to get their projects across the finish line. What makes this interview a bit different is uh, you have worked on like larger scale and larger scaled and more established projects. The first of which uh, that I'd like to talk about would be the Elder would be Elder Scrolls Online, which is just a massive MMO tied to a franchise with a, a rich history and a deep lore. So my next question for you, uh, when writing and designing for a project as massive as this, how do you ensure that every element of your design work comes together to tell a cohesive story? that not only borrows from established lore, but aims to create new and exciting adventures for the player that are unique, uh, representative of all players, but also recognizable as an Elder Scrolls adventure. Oof. Okay, yeah, that's, that's almost like two separate questions to me almost, because how do I make sure that like, you know, everything comes together is communication, 
working with teams, like everybody being an expert in their love, like their game design department, right? And and really making that a cohesive experience. But specifically for Elder Scrolls, for Elder Scrolls Online, uh, it, it's a it's a really cool undertaking because you are working with something that so many people really love and a lot of people really know their lore and they yes. love these these characters they love this lore they like love their their specific like they love the argonians and they like you know always like they know all the lore and the research and when you do something like our dlc Merkmeyer, you're like i need to make sure that the players who love argonians will love Merkmeyer, right but i have to also make sure that somebody who doesn't know a lot about the Argonians doesn't know a lot about, you know, Black Marsh and the history with the Imperials and all that other stuff, that they'll also have a good time, you know, uh, that they'll right. also resonate with our story and resonate with my characters in a way that, like, I will not teach them something, but, like, engage them with something that they might not have known before. So it's 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 kind of something that... Um, you're working with a legacy like that, but you're working on an MMO, which is supposed to be kind of like something, there's something for everyone in an MMO. I know some people call them amusement parks. I do not think that's an insult because I like amusement parks, right? <laughs> uh, so like, you know, we got fishing, we got um, crafting, we have like, you know, raids and we have like super hard dungeons and we also have story, right? And characters and like really great voice acting. A great thing about the shows online is that almost every line is voice acted, period. <laughs> like, you know, all the, <laughs> if a character's speaking, you're going to hear it, which is not something a lot of MMOs do. Um, yeah. But yeah, so like, it's really something that you have to kind of balance your expectations of this zone and you can't see it strictly from a devoted fan viewpoint and you can't see it strictly from a uh, newcomer viewpoint. You really have to balance the two and give both of them something that they're really going to latch onto and enjoy. So, and it's difficult, <laughs> you know, Elder Scrolls Online has <laughs> been doing it for quite a while now and, you know, I, I, they're, they're still balancing that act, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah, we have a... We have a lot of Elder Scrolls fans on our main podcast. And um, like, I have played a little bit of Elder Scrolls, but I do not know. I, I am not familiar with nearly as much of the lore as of like some of the people that are on the podcast and they've talked to me about it. And it's just, I would imagine, you know, adding in anything, there has to be so many different like pieces or, or, um, you know, like previous works that, that need to be considered, uh, when, you know, when crafting anything new for this. And so it's always interesting to hear like how that process goes. Yeah. Uh, ESO actually has a lore master. Um, oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, we actually, there's been, I, I worked with two of them. There's a new one. Uh, oh my gosh. I, I unfortunately don't remember his name. It's Michael, um, something, but I worked with a uh, Lauren Schick and, um, Lehman Tuttle. Uh, were the two lore masters that I did it during uh, I worked with at my during my time on ESO, um, and so that that's that's kind of their job to really know <laughs> the lore and to research it and to be like fact checking a lot of things about the game to make sure that there aren't any inaccuracies. So there's literally just a whole position that just does that, uh, and not just <laughs> nice. like you know they do yeah. other things. But, like, <laughs> that's their main MO. That's why they're called lore master. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I'm I'm so embarrassed. I can't. I don't know the the current. I'm gonna look it up real quick. I'm so sorry. I just I kind of shut him out. Michael Zenke. That's his. That's his name. Okay. It's funny when I tell uh, when I tell people on Lore Party that there is actually 
a <laughs> a role out there called lore master that's going to uh that is going to honestly like excite some people a lot <laughs> yeah it's not just Zenimax too uh, i think blizzard just recently put out a call for a associate lore master or maybe they called it lore historian so there are other studios quite a few actually that have somebody who who that's their title <laughs> <laughs> that i feel like i pick up something new every interview and like that is <laughs> that is the tidbit of information that i am i'm saving in the bank for, <laughs> for afterwards all right so another project that you've worked on is uh, Spellbreak, uh, a magic battle royale game. Mm -hmm. So you know when working on when working on a battle royale game, uh, studios tend to focus on the gameplay and the mechanics that support said gameplay, and um, you know in, in doing so, stories aren't always a huge focus. And while that is true, like having interconnected lore is something that has become more commonplace in these types of games. And so as a narrative designer with a strong background in writing and storytelling, how did you leverage your experiences in, in world building and storytelling in a game whose main focus is to battle other players online? And what sort of challenges did you face? And uh, what were some victories that you had? Oh, yeah, it was a uh, it was quite an exciting challenge going into Proletaria. I didn't really know what to expect because I was like, I don't really think a story when I think about Royales. And they're like, yeah, we know. That's why we're excited to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, OK, uh, so I took a lot of what I had learned from ESO, especially working on the dungeon content, um, which is like mostly combat. So you really don't want to interject too much story, but you want to add story as a life like like, like a, a flavor within it you want story to kind of just be there as like something that people can engage with and choose to engage with so there's a lot of like optional scenes that you can watch or dialogue you can uh read in dungeons for eso um and it's like oh, there's information at the top and information at the end so that like you know you can kind of go through it if you wish um it's unobtrusive, I would say, but it, it also flavors like the enemies that you fight and the world that you're going through and like all the, you know, like like uh, we did one for werewolves at ESO uh, and it was all about werewolves. And so like the, everything that we did was like around the lore of werewolves in Elder Scrolls. And um, we did another one uh, for her sign, the uh, Prince of the Hunt, which is like in his realm. Uh, and, and that was really fun. And we literally had a skybox that was like super magical. And then we put her sign like in the skybox and he was just a giant God watching over you the whole time, which was really cool. <laughs> he had like a big reindeer. He has a big like deer head with like a buff dude body. So it was just like, oh, it's cool that like you're in his realm and he's always watching over you. So like, like even if stories is something that you're like choosing to engage with, it still flavors the world and still really helps it come out in dungeon content. So for spell break, going to that <laughs> um there's actually quite a bit of lore when i came in that the that proletariat had kind of already established um through like these journals that they had uh submitted on their reddit and i obviously didn't want to like go back against her or say like oh no i want to do my own thing you know I, I took these this lore information very seriously and so i said okay from this what can we do with the uh story going forward and what would we like to do with the story week to week because what we had was chapter systems and so yeah. every week we would have a story that was like introduced to you through a character who would give you a quest and that quest or it was actually a series of three quests would then like kind of tell you what was happening in the world so spell break has this story of like you are a breaker 
And the thing is that you have broken an oath that's very important because it outlaws magic. And you're like, no, I want to use magic. So you're like an outlaw kind of outcast in the society. And the world has also just gone through basically an apocalypse. So you're like basically like running through these lands that have been destroyed recently. And so like, you know, that's just the flavor conversation, the back of everything that's happening. It's why there's no people in this world. It's why it's so empty and why all the buildings are broken. Right. And, um, you know, something of, uh, the story was really something that I think wasn't really made to be at the forefront of like every single time you play, but something that they wanted to enhance kind of the world and like the experience of the players in like a background sort of way. So when I was brought on, I said, okay, how do we take this background information and bring it to the forefront? So the entirety of like the first chapter was about exploring like, Hey, why did the apocalypse happen? <laughs> like, like, what was that about? <laughs> like, like, you know, like what happened here? You know, it's so, cause that's like in the forefront of everybody's mind. So in that way you get right. to talk about, Hey, the apocalypse happened and you're in an apocalyptic kind of wasteland. It's very beautiful game. It doesn't look like an apocalyptic wasteland, but it's like, there's no people and the buildings are broken and here's why. But like, it's also engaging you to explore the world and to kind of solve this mystery with them. Uh, and so I think that it was very challenging from the start, not just from a design perspective, but just from like implementation. Like I had to go into proletariat and be like, Hey, I want to do a quest where you like go and collect an item. And they'd be like, okay, we don't have that. We have to build that. And like everything that I asked for, like, <laughs> can we have somebody talk to you? We got to build it like from scratch. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So there was a lot of things that we had to just create. So it was a very tough first chapter because we we're getting everything like built. So like I had to really like curb my expectations of what kind of content I could put out there because I just didn't have time to make something super fancy or super like flavorful. And I think that that was like a really tough chapter for me because I was like, I was the narrative person and I was making all these quests and I was making all this content. And then I was really helping, uh, you know, design it, but I couldn't implement a lot of it because it was being built like from an engineering standpoint, the way to implement it was being built as like we were working on that chapter. I didn't have time to learn how to implement things. It was very crazy and hectic. Uh, And engineers kind of had to implement it for me because they were like building these systems as we went. But then by chapter two, I really like, you know, had the time then to learn how to implement quests myself, how to, uh, you know, work on quests and then also put them in the engine, basically, so that they were in the game. And I had to write a bunch of documentation of how to do this so that I wouldn't forget. And like, you know, anybody who came <laughs> before me or helped me could like learn about it. So it was a lot of like just technical work and i was also trying to get feedback from players like what quests did they like what quests did they not like what was too intrusive what was like not exciting enough and then also like building up like okay now that we have these types of quests in play how about these types of quests like for example i wanted to be able to throw a fireball at something and destroy it and that was chapter two and that was a whole thing i had to ask for and a whole thing that i had to get in done and you might not think much about it because you're like oh of course like every game has you can throw a fireball on it and it'll be destroyed but it's actually quite complicated especially if you want it to be like a quest so like we had to get that in and implement it and there was bugs and fix those bugs and things and i think by chapter three we really had a good thing going where i even had a character who could like come out and hang out with you a little bit during the quest because um we had this robot named Brilly. So the, the the chapter three thing was that there were evil robots who had been unearthed and they were attacking. And Brilly was a friendly robot who would help you because he was like, you know, 
he was like your your companion through all this. And he would know what the evil robots were up to because he's also a robot. And so I, I was like, <laughs> oh, you know what would be so fun? If you like collected pieces of him one week and they're all like in different locations and we like gave you hints about where they are and then you collect them all and then you go and you like build him and he like pops up <laughs> and he says, thanks for helping me. And it was nice. like such a cute idea. And I'm like, can we do it? And like, I worked with some great engineers and level designers and we were able to like make it happen. And I was so proud of myself. I'm like, yes, a character in game that's like interacting with you. And he's so cute. I love him. Uh, <laughs> and like, I'm sure you're just like, oh, you collect piece and you make him. Okay. <laughs> like it's not super exciting to sound as a class, but as a narrative designer, I was like, yes, I'm so excited about this. <laughs> this is so good. And he had a cute little voice. Our, our, um, audio director, like gave him such a cute, like little robo voice. And I loved him a lot. Um, and the funny story about that is the only reason I was even able to like, kind of get that character is that it was a player skin that we were going to sell the players. And I said, Hey, can I also use it in my quest? And they're like, sure, you know, so I didn't have to ask for a new character because that's also really <laughs> expensive because we were making tons of player skins because we want to give players like things to like, you know, purchase and, and, and uh, rewards to like also earn through like the battle pass and stuff. And so it's just like, yes, I can reuse this. It's zero cost and I can put it in my game. And there's, of course, a million bugs. <laughs> I had to try to fix. But it was like small to like, I'm sure players were like, cool but i was super excited about it because it's like a new thing that i got into the game right so like right. again super challenging a lot of like just like learning how to like you know build narrative in this game but also literally building the tech for it but also like every single time i got a new thing in and it worked and, and i was like yes this is great because it became more immersive and that was kind of the idea for chapter to chapter just like start building up a repertoire of like things you could do during quests to make them more interesting and give them more like flavors and more different like kind of interactions and stuff and so that <laughs> that's kind of the the idea around why i was narrative on Spellbreak on a battle royale no that's awesome you know you don't think about that much you know like that kind of work happening on this this type of game and and like these pieces coming together to create more and more interactive experience for the player. Like I would have never thought that like something like shooting a fireball or building a robot serves those purposes, but no, it's actually interesting to hear that it makes you really take like a, a, a different look at this game and other similar game types with like certain quests and how they're implemented. Yeah. You, you don't understand. Like, I feel like unless you like go through it, you just, it's really easy to take for granted how hard it is to get certain things in the game and then how hard it is to like make sure it's something that functions and doesn't break and you know it gives you experience and how much time that takes and how much like you know as designers i feel like i could design something on paper that's like miraculous and the best thing ever but like the the true need for a game designer that's a true talent for a game designer to have is to understand what's my scope, what do I have available to me, what's already built that I can reuse, what's already here that we can then build off of. And that's kind of how you become a successful game designer and game developer. And I think that's also something that a lot of people should really highlight like in interviews or you know things like that or, or in their portfolios is like, this is how much I can do you know, with 
expectations that are realistic with uh, with something that I know that we can accomplish as an entire team and won't break the bank, you know, so to say. And that's it's a skill I don't think a lot of people think about because you just want to make the coolest game or the coolest you know experience or the coolest story, but you really have to make the coolest story within the scope of what that game can do and what your studio can do. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, oftentimes working within constraints as a creative produces some of the wildest and most successful ideas that that I've seen. Yeah, I agree with that. With that, we are going to move into the second half of the episode. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. So in the first half of the show, you know, we talked about narrative design and the projects that you've been a part of. Uh, now I want to talk about the importance of narrative design in gaming overall, especially when you look at things like diversity and inclusion in video games. So one thing when I was doing research, I found your bio on your website and um, which I really liked, so I added it to my show notes. On it, you wrote that um, I'm a writer, narrative designer with strong background in epic fantasy, MMO, RPGs, live service games, and award-winning diversity representation. I've always had a passion for games with thought-provoking narratives and memorable characters. It's been a realization of a lifelong dream to be able to write for games and create stories that resonate with players in a way that so many great games have resonated with me. I mentioned earlier that narrative design allows non-written elements of storytelling to play a huge part in humanizing characters so that they're more relatable and impactful to players. What I appreciate about your work is that you utilize this discipline to make sure that underrepresented groups and people have a voice. And that is like, I, I, I just I can't appreciate that anymore because those have been some of my favorite video games are. And I feel like anybody would agree with us, your favorite video game, your favorite piece of media, whatever it is, um, you can see yourself in it. Um, and that comes in a lot of different forms. Um, so I want to focus on, like I mentioned, I want to focus on narrative design and how it impacts the experience of video games. And 
I want to use a good example from a game that we already talked about. So I left that out of the first half of the interview purposefully. So um, I want to hop back into Elder Scrolls for for a moment. So you and you know you and other people were responsible for the um, the quest Manner of Masks. Um, which received the first GLAD award and introduced the first transgender character to Elder Scrolls while telling the story of Alchemy's struggle to be accepted by her twin sister. So my question for you that centers around um, this particular experience is, you know, for myself as someone who is queer and a minority, like I know this that the stories of acceptance or ones that you know aim to highlight underrepresented groups can be the most impactful, but it requires an incredible amount of thoughtfulness, attention to detail, and generally connecting with the community you're representing. And I can think of millions of examples of failures. And just most recently, there was a you know a Marvel comic issue where uh, Miles Morales was Thor, and uh, they really did not represent um you know black people well um it was it, the instead of like being something that was empowering it was full of stereotypes uh and it was it was wildly unpopular uh and the person that like the the writer ended up having to apologize just because it was it was it was a giant mess but you know, Manner of Masks didn't have that issue. It beautifully showcased transgender individuals and highlighted a personal struggle that many in that community face. So my question to you is, how did this quest come to be? And how did you avoid the pitfalls and trappings of telling this story in a way that may not have resonated with said community? Right, so first of all, I, I was really lucky that Elder Scrolls had already, well, Elder Scrolls Online specifically, had already said, queer people are in this game, and they exist, and nobody cares. It's just a thing. <laughs> uh, so there's there was gay characters before I came on, specifically, like, you know, gay men and lesbian women. And so um, I was really excited about that, because I'm, I'm a bisexual woman, I, you know, and I love... Uh, I like it when games represent me and I like making games that represent other people. And I think that that just brings so much love and joy. And I'm like, yes, I can, I can do queer characters in this. Um, <laughs> so I actually though, wasn't the one who's like wanted to do alchemy and manner of mass. This was a concept created by a content designer, Eric Kutis, who, uh, you know, wanted to do this and they put me on the quest and I was, I was like honored. I was so excited so I was put on the project. I was I was paired up with Eric Bacutis as a content designer, and I was so excited. I was fairly new. This was still within my first year uh, with Elder Scrolls Online, and I was like, okay. And I told this already. I said, I want to do this right by the transgender community. I'm not interested in anyone else when it comes to this story and its representation. You know, I don't want to make something that's like unobtrusive to, I don't know, cisgender players or something that. You know, I don't care about anybody else. I just want somebody who's transgender to be able to play this quest and love it. And so that was my philosophy going forward. And that's honestly my philosophy with any representation I make for games, right? Uh, and so in doing so, you know, obviously I had done research on like transgender media and like like representation within media, I should say, and characters and like what are things that the transgender community like doesn't like or like, you know, have strong feelings about and things like that. Um 
And so during this quest, we decided to not focus on the fact that Alchemy was, you know, trans a transgender woman. We focused on the fact that she wanted to join a circus or an acting troupe, you know, technically. Yeah. And her sister wanted her to be a mage. And she's like, ah, yes. Like, you know, my sibling is making this horrible mistake. And so uh, she, she at that time believes that her sibling is her brother. Uh, as we find out, Alchemy has transitioned while in the acting troupe. So, um, you know, she, uh, so as we meet Alchemy, she now identifies as a woman. And so you're not told, like, who she is. Because the whole thing about the quest is you're trying to find uh, Renai's sibling and, like, going through these, like... And so you're you're joining the acting troupe as a spy so that you can find out who the sibling is and then stop the sibling, right? And so you find, oh, actually, it's your mentor all along. It's alchemy all along. Um, and so that was supposed to be... It's pretty obvious. It's supposed to be kind of a metaphor to, like, you know, transitioning to being tra- being transgender and your siblings like maybe not knowing about it or your siblings disapproving of it but we wanted to kind of focus more on the I joined an acting troupe uh, aspect of it to like not make it too harsh on players who might be playing through it um, yeah. and so that was a like conscious decision that we made because we are obviously a, a queer friendly game. And so at the very end, when Alchemy comes out to her sister and talks about like, Hey, I'm Alchemy now. I joined this acting troupe. This is my, this is my truth. This is what I want to do. Um, we just had her sister kind of immediately accept her and be like, ah, yes, we know my sister. Uh, Cause we just, I don't, we didn't want to make a bummer ending for what was essentially the, the first transgender character in elder scrolls. Right. And so, I think that we kind of wanted to play up like a lot. It's a fun quest. It's a lighthearted quest. It has a happy ending. Um, and it was just a conscious choice because this was really supposed to be like a, you know, obviously an interesting storytelling moment. We wanted players to really like alchemy and to be really interested in alchemy and her story and her backstory and who she was as a character. I really love that character just by herself. Um, but we also wanted to be kind of a welcome mat for people who were transgender in ESO and especially people who were playing transgender characters uh, and was actually getting, you know, I, I saw online that people were getting backlash about it. Like, like, oh, you can't be a transgender character in Elder Scrolls. Like that doesn't exist in the lore, which is just, you know, obviously, you know, uh, transphobia. <laughs> like, let's be right. honest here. But I was right. like, no, you're wrong. People are transgender in Elder Scrolls and it's just a thing. They have magic. They can turn people into guars and they can like make giant mushrooms appear and disappear. Yes, you can trans, you can transition your gender in Elder Scrolls and it's a thing that characters do. It's a thing that your character can do and nobody's going to care, you know? And so that's really how I saw Manner of Masks. Like, yeah, let's make a fun quest, like make an interesting story, make a great character, but also I wanted people to feel represented and I wanted them to feel welcome. In Elder Scrolls, like in the lands of Tamriel, you know, uh, <laughs> so that was really how I kind of approached it. And uh, so we did get a sensitivity reader to like play through the quest and to give feedback. And that feedback was invaluable. We made a lot of like polished past changes to the story. Overall, they did like the concept in the story. Um, but yeah, so that was definitely something. And I, obviously, I think that it's it's kind of known wisdom. Like if you're going to represent, uh, you know, somebody in games, that you should get like a sensitivity reader who can give you that feedback and can tell you kind of things about that character or that story. <laughs> like you're talking about um, the Miles Morales story with Thor, and I'm just obviously I'm sure like a consultant of some type that could have read through that and like 
you know, been a voice that was, you know, an expert in those matters, honestly. And there are, there's tons of people who are experts in like, you know, representation, um, especially people who are part of those identities, right? Those are obviously the best. And I think that that's just so important to do with any piece of media, especially like if you're introducing a character who like alchemy is the first, right? And you want to do it right. So that was something that we did during the process as well. That's awesome. (laughs) That is super awesome. And it is, you know, it, it is something that I, I honestly wish I would see more, but I'm, I am more hopeful when hearing stories like this that, you know, uh, the right work is being done and the, the um, right work is becoming more um, more mainstream. So it's less of a less of a guess and uh, more of a, um, you know, you're, you're actually performing the proper checks and, and uh, you know, speaking with people that are going to give you the correct insights. Right. And of course, I also think if like, if I were to make a game that was really focused, you know, on the story of somebody who's transgender, which there are great games that have done this, like I, somebody very high up there, somebody in that creative process needs to be, you know, representative of that group. And I think that that's something that we've seen again and again. Those are the most genuine stories. Those are the stories that resonate with people. Those are the stories that people want to hear because somebody's telling it who's been through that or, or, you know, has that insight and also just that, you know, creativity to really tell that story in just these wonderful, heartfelt ways. Um, you know, it, obviously, if, if we had somebody on the team in the Elder Scrolls um, online who was transgender, but like, yes, give that that quest of that person but um we did make sure we had a sensitivity reader that we consulted with that like got to see our edits and things and i think that's something that um every game company can and should do um i know even smaller indie companies you know maybe you don't have the money to pay somebody to do that uh some really great advice that i've heard over the years is to like give out free keys to people who are willing to kind of you know, basically test out your game and to give you feedback, you might be part of those identities as well. I've even had seen podcasts where they're like, hey, if anybody identifies as, you know, uh, like, like, just for an example, I remember in the Adventure Zone, Griffin, uh, McRoy called out like, hey, if anybody's transgender and is willing to talk to me about that experience in those, like creating characters, can you please like contact me? And that was because a uh, loop was going to come into the to the Adventure Zone, uh, their podcast. And I thought that was really great that he just basically made a call out and he was like, can people feel free to consult with me? Though I, I'm sure at this point, hopefully they could hire consultants and maybe they have, I'm not yes. 100% sure. <laughs> but like a more indie small project, you can definitely be like, I'll give you a free code or I'll give you like, you know, maybe a free t-shirt or something. So as small as you can be, I think that you can still make that effort and people really notice and appreciate and your game's going to be better for it when it comes to representation. Yes, which is a and, and so that being said, that is actually a good uh, transition into my next question. Um, and so so while you know while doing research for this episode, I came across your presentation uh, about LGBTQ plus representation uh, for GDC, which you know honestly brilliantly lays out uh, how to properly represent members of the community, and it can also be applied to any group, uh, any underrepresented group. So in your own opinion, why do you think there is still a struggle with representation in a lot of uh, AAA studios when 
win in the indie scene for the most part, what I've seen um, is they've seemed seemingly solved this issue for the most part with shoestring budgets or, you know, like one person working on, on a game. Well, I'll say first for like, why are so many indie games getting it so right and so wonderful? And that is because I think indie is a game of passion and love, right? To like work on this indie game. And so a lot of people who are making queer games are queer themselves or making games with any representation, right? They, they represent that in like their studio, like, like almost sometimes 100%. Like I've seen studios that are 100% queer or 100%, you know, um, non-white and that's and then they just make that content because like or that's something that they want to do and they're passionate about and that's like they are you know creating content that represents their identity whatever that is and that's really the best kind of games is by people who are like i want to tell a story about south asian you know growing up as somebody who's south asian in america and then you know they tell that story and it resonates and it feels so real because they experience that right um and so I think that's a really a huge reason. I also think that a lot of indie developers like want to get it right because they know they have kind of a small audience and they don't want to, I think, upset that audience or they don't want to kind of, I think, do it wrong because, you know, their game is usually so small and contained that a queer character or a non-white character might be like really important to getting that game right or that story right. Um, and so that they are willing to put in that effort. Uh, and that definitely shows, right, in the end result. Whereas in AAA, there's, like, <laughs> the company so worried about so many things. And this one little representative of this one, like, you know, identity might not be super top of the ladder because they don't see, like, you know, how does that really fit in the huge aspect of this huge game? And it's really, I think, something that um, there's been a lot of initiatives and I think a lot of like feedback from people that have gotten them to hire, like some studios literally have like a diversity consultant in their staff or they'll hire a consultant, like an external consultant to like go ahead and um, you know review their game. Glad specifically will also review uh, queer games for content. I got I remember talking to them after I got the reward, the award for um, outstanding video game uh, that they were like, yeah, like we're always here to consult with people. And we lo- like, that's what it, like our organization does is we make sure that queer content and media is like, you know, respectfully done. And so that you can reach out to them and, you know, things like that. Uh, they love working, especially with like bigger publishers or bigger game studios that have a broader reach as well, just because I think that they like know how many people will have their eyes on that and things like that. Um, so I think that just like the prioritization is low with some studios when it comes to that representation and they'll maybe want to do it because they want to kind of like have something to showcase. Or I think a lot more often there's like somebody in that studio, like who is, you know, part of that identity. He's just like, Oh, what if we had a, like this character be bisexual instead of just like straight. Right. And then right. that person might be low ranking or they might be like not a huge voice. And so like when they raise concerns or when they say like, Oh, maybe we could hire like a sensitivity reader about this, like they're silenced or maybe not silenced, but they're just not listened to, or it's just like, Oh, maybe like if we had the budget and then the budget's just never there. So I think right. it's definitely priorities. And, um, 
And then it's a question of like, well, do we do we put this in and we make sure that it's done right? Or do we like do this half-assed job, but at least it's in there, at least there's something, you know, and that's something that a lot of studios I think struggle with because getting it wrong is scary, right? You know, big studios, they don't want to get it wrong as much as you might think because they don't want the backlash. They don't want people to be mad. But then, you know, they also, I think, are encouraged because the truth is that like uh, media that is, you know, diverse has larger audience pools and and majority of and i'm not even just say americans because that's where i am and that's kind of where i know majority of americans are accepting of that media and like you know are fine to consume it it's not something that like like statistically it's good to have representation in like you know your media so but (laughs) it's just like you're like yeah okay but we i need money to do this right and they're like ooh. (laughs) we have to buy this giant cinematic or we have to do this and like they just they don't prioritize it and it's really tough and i think as more game developers are like entering the industry who are you know i guess diverse uh then and they're able to put in their insight and they're able to push for those narratives and they're able to really build up that like you know build up their voices in those studios because also like you know if you're a lead you have a lot more say in things. Or if you're a director, you have a lot more say in things. And if you're an associate or you're not in narrative, but you're like trying to get the narrative team to do something. Um, so yeah, it's a big complicated issue. I, and I don't want to point to any one studio or any one game, but like it is something that I think is getting better over time. I actually did a talk about this specifically about like the state of representation in games uh, for PAX, uh, PAX, I forget if it was PAX East. It was like during the COVID time. So it was like, it's a, it's crazy. But yeah, I did a talk, a uh, really great talk about like what queer representations realities are like. And um, I gave one at PAX East and then I gave one about like, why are industries like, why are, sorry, why is the game industry struggling with this? Uh, another time online for another PAX panel. So it's a, it's, it's a big topic. I feel like okay. I rambled a lot in that answer because it's a okay. lot of thoughts. Oh no! I mean, there's there's a lot to consider when when coming, you know, when when approaching this, um, and you know, it there has been a larger push for representation in all forms of media, and you know, in the past few years, but it's still like a fairly new concept. I I feel like so you have like there, are, it runs contradictory to some like like. Um, sort of like like uh, I guess legacy notions in, in different industries. So depending where you are, you know, we're we're obviously talking about like game gaming, like it is big now, but like I remember, you know, we go back like 10 years, it wasn't as prevalent. Um, I remember being a kid in PlayStation one and the first time I ever really saw um, like a woman in any video game was like Laura Croft and Tomb Raider. And I know that there were some, there were obviously women in games before that, but it wasn't as prevalent. And you, for the most part, couldn't play as them. So like, it is a, uh, it is, it is something that um, it's ever evolving. And it's great to see that there is more representation in video games. And, uh, but it is also good to be um, conscious of like how much work there still, you know, that still remains for this. That's why I really appreciated um, the presentation that you put together. It was like super informative, 
easy to digest, and I really feel like it's easy to implement. Yeah, I was I was hoping that give us something that somebody who was struggling to get it right would be able to like watch. And by the way, it's on YouTube. If anybody out there wants to watch it, uh, uh, I think if you just search Tori Schaefer JVC, um, it's a uh, it's pretty easy to find. But uh, yeah, I, I wanted somebody who's like, hey, my company doesn't. I guess this is my like imaginary scenario. I'm in a studio. I want to get it right, but like I you know, but there's just no budget for it or they're like, Oh yeah, we can't hire somebody to do this or bring somebody in. Or like, if, if we have to, we'll just cut it. And you're like, no, I don't want to cut it, but I want to get it right. Like that was kind of what that talk was for. Like somebody who wants to do like a respectful representation, but also might not have resources other than that talk. And I think there's also been a lot of great talks and a lot of great blog posts, like talking about this. Um, that have come out as people realize this is something that they want to do in media and something that they want others to do in media, but do right and do respectfully. So that was just, you know, I, I, I wanted to do that for specifically the queer community with that talk, but I do think that hopefully it's applicable to any representation that you want to put in your game or even just your media. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And I will uh, link that in the, the show notes for this episode. So if anybody is interested um, in seeing like, you know, the entire presentation, it'll be available. Um, yeah. So definitely feel like more people should should view this because it was it was super helpful. I'm glad. And so kind of moving on to um, like our like the final part of the episode, I always have uh, two final questions Uh that I, I mostly like will rearrange for all of the guests on the show. So my first question is, um, you know, you know, if you go to your Twitter account, you've posted a thread about getting hired as a narrative designer slash writer in the game industry. What's one piece of advice though that you would have for aspiring creatives looking to blaze their path in the industry? You know, as a narrative designer, as a writer, as somebody who just wants to be in video games in general, but, you know, might not know where to aim. Right. So if I had to give one piece of advice, it would be learn all you can about the entire process. Um, the more knowledge you have about, like, what happens when you make the realities of when you make a game. And like how long it takes to make like one character in like a modern day, you know, of like the you know, Last of Us kind of quality of Naughty Dog quality of game, right? Uh, yeah. Or like you know, watching like videos about design or reading books about design, watching videos about design about the principles behind that because design really is everything coming together, right? Level design, narrative design, <laughs> you know, content designer you know all these things uh and the more knowledge you have and the more you like know the reality the better spoken you will be and the more realistic you will be about what role you can play in a part of that right and and, and kind of building up that knowledge i think is just so important and it will really show when you're talking even as an associate like applying for an associate position you know being able to talk about the realities of that and then of course everybody says it actually making a game or actually writing out a script or actually making a twine uh, for specifically for writing uh, can then show you like how that interactive media can really work and the realities of it and how it feels to play in that flow. 
that's always like, you know, everybody's like, do game jams or like make your own game or like take a class or something. And it's, it's true. <laughs> you know, it's always impressive when you're <laughs> like, I've been through it. I've done it. And you're like, cool. You know, uh, it's just, it's just true. Um, as somebody who's like been part of the hiring process. So, so learn all you can and then actually do it, <laughs> which is, I think also great advice for just writing in general. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Creative works in general for sure. Yeah, no, 100%. I totally, I totally agree with that. And so my final question for you, as a writer and narrative designer, what advice can you give to those from represented communities who want to be allies um, and help highlight the stories of uh, the underrepresented communities in a meaningful way? I would say, um, first of all, consume media that has been created by those communities or at least really loved by those communities. Uh, you know, see what has been done that people have really felt resonated with them and then try to understand why. Uh, listen to those communities is a big one, right? Like people are very vocal and, you know, there's a lot of online presence of people saying like, I didn't like this in this piece of media and this is how it made me feel. There's YouTube videos, you know, uh, blogs. There's, you know, entire books, honestly, written about this topic that you can really do your research about. There's my GDC talk <laughs> that you could yeah. always watch. Um, it, yeah. So like try to like, you know, research and listen. And then of course, like if you could work with somebody in that community, either as a sensitivity reader or something that you bring on to the project, uh, that's always great. You know, having somebody evaluate your work and be able to tell you, Hey, this isn't something that's like, you know, this isn't good. <laughs> like this isn't, this is something that people will not like in my community. And I know because I'm part of that community. And also, if that person can also be like a professional, right, sensitivity reader or professional editor with like, you know, that experience and that like, you know, education. And I'm not even going to say education in the sense that they have a degree, but rather like they've done it before. This is their passion. This is like what they're good at because there are individuals like that. And, you know, they are definitely something to utilize. And that is also the best. But like I said, you could even just talk to people in that community who are willing to talk to you uh, and get a, and get a breadth of voices. If that's like, if you don't have the budget to hire somebody or to like, you know, interview somebody like that, who's like a professional, you know, just like listening to them and, and seeing like what, how they want to be represented and, and what has resonated with them in the past. And I think that's really important. Um, yeah. I think that, I think that's like my biggest pieces of advice. <laughs> Okay. No, that's, that's awesome. I totally agree with that. And so we have made it to the end of the episode. You know, it's, this has been a wonderful conversation and I'm glad you were, you know, able, able to come on today. Um, this is the part where I like to let all of my guests, you know, plug their work, their projects, anything they want people to know about. Right. So I actually have two tarot card decks that I wrote for coming out tomorrow. So I don't know when this is going to come out. So it's probably already out at this stage, thinking about how podcasts work. Um, so the first one is the Skyrim uh, tarot card uh, deck and book guidebook that I wrote. And um, another one is Hocus Pocus, themed, which is really fun. And then in August, there's a Star Trek tarot card deck that's coming out that I wrote for and I planned uh so that's really exciting, specifically the next generation. And then in October, there's a Fallout 4 themed one that's coming out. 
So I <laughs> got a lot of side work <laughs> and read all these tarot card books. And I'm really hoping people like them. And I really hope people might purchase them. Uh, and you can find that where books are sold, I suppose. Insight Editions is the company that sells them. So you can go directly on their website. But I'm sure other marketplaces will have them as well. Yep. Okay. And I will uh, put a link to that in the um, show notes as well, too. So we'll be able to go right to it. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was honestly, it was fantastic. Uh, you know, thank you for uh, for coming on. I really appreciate it. This was such a lovely conversation. Thank you for inviting me. This was great. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really honored that you asked, honestly. So this is really exciting for me as well. Awesome. And with that, we've wrapped up this episode of Those Who Play Create. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you choose to listen. Stay up to date with the Lore Party Podcast Network by connecting with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Twitch at Lore underscore Party. And if you're in the game industry and would like to appear on the show, shoot me a message on Twitter at produced by underscore LK. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.